Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah, chapter 26. Well, in this chapter, we will still hear from Alma and from the great King Mosiah, but there most certainly is a shift. We're now focusing on a new generation, and it's referred to as the rising generation in this chapter. Now, after so much was resolved in Mosiah chapter 25, there are new problems now that arise among this rising generation. We'll learn later in subsequent chapters that there were those among the rising generation who were tied to King Mosiah and to Alma themselves. We'll come to that story, of course, in the next chapter in Mosiah chapter 27. For now, we'll focus on this really very unique chapter, particularly because in form and content, it's quite similar to a section of the Doctrine and Covenants, almost any section of the Doctrine and Covenants, really, where Joseph went to the Lord with a vexing problem or a perplexing question, dealing with a variety of issues, whether it was a scriptural question, something from the book of Revelation, a doctrinal question in general, or perhaps a procedural question. And and that's kind of what's happening here in Mosiah chapter 26, where Alma brings this difficult procedural question to the Lord. He's not exactly sure how to handle this rising generation of youth who have rejected Christ and have rejected a covenant relationship with him. What follows then, beginning in verse 15, will be this beautiful first-person language from the Lord himself, just as though we were reading out of a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. But in this case, it's being given to Alma and was prompted by a question from Alma. So with that in mind, we will first find uh, the backstory to this revelation that comes to Alma. And as readers, we too will wonder what to do with this rising generation, and then this answer comes from the Lord. So with that as a short introduction, here's a flyover summary of the chapter. The first six verses uh, tell of a new movement of unbelief that arises among this rising generation. And we learn that this movement, interestingly, is unbeknownst to Alma. So we'll return to all of that. Then, in verses 7 through 9, we find that these dissenters of this rising generation, they are brought before the church. And once they're brought before the church, they're ultimately brought before Alma himself. This is because, if we haven't kind of divined this from the previous chapter, verse 8 tells us here, King Mosiah had given Alma authority over the church. Again, then, we know for sure that Alma's authority was over the entire church of Zarahemla, 
not just over the followers of Limhi that he had baptized and his own people that he had led into the land of Mormon, into the land of Helam, through the valley of Alma, and back to Zarahemla. But Alma is the authority over the entire church. So it devolves upon him to deal with these dissenters that are brought before him. Yet, it says that in verse 10, there had not any such thing happened before in the church, therefore Alma was troubled in his spirit. So he takes them to his trusted confidant and the civic leader of this kingdom, King Mosiah. We find that Mosiah's reaction is to send them back to Alma. So there's some back and forth here. He says, I judge them not, uh, therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. So now Alma really has no option uh, at this point, and that's instructive to us, of course, as well, when we have no option after having exhausted our trusted mortal resources, we might say. He goes to the Lord. and In verses 13 and 14, we find him uh, going straight to the Lord and speaking to him. Then, it's in verses 15 through 32 that we get this segment that reads very much like a section out of the Doctrine and Covenants. But it begins, instead of a, a blessed art thou Joseph, with a blessed art thou Alma. And then the Lord continues in third person and instructs Alma on this matter of procedure and, and of church governance, and in so doing, teaches wonderful doctrines at the same time. He basically reminds Alma in this segment that he is the one worthy judge because he is the one who has suffered for all including those dissenters who are in question here. It's a very beautiful passage. Then we find in the final verse of this chapter that Alma responds the same way we should when we receive revelation. He writes it. And uh, then, after having written it, he does go ahead and judge those dissenters accordingly uh, to the revelation that has been given. And I've, I've misspoke. That's not the final verse of this chapter Uh, That segment extends from verses 33 through 36. Then we find the results of this after Alma has received this revelation. He has written it, and then he has judged the people accordingly, according to his capacity as a leader of the church. And we find in verses 37 through 39, and that is the final segment of this chapter, that peace in the church is restored. Now, while having said that, we also can see that there is ongoing persecution, which is a little bit troubling. So we get a resolution to this story, but it's not complete. We learn that from verse 38, which says that Alma and his fellow laborers uh, walked in all diligence and taught the word of God in all things and suffered all manner of afflictions. So it all seems pretty well in character uh, until we get this, being persecuted by all those who did not belong to the church of God. So clearly, not all is resolved. There are still those with, of course, with their agency among these dissenters in this rising generation who are not responsive to Alma's teachings or Alma's fellow laborers' teachings. That gives us a little thread, a little segue that will move us into the next chapter as we find that among those dissenters were even the son of Alma himself which is really something to consider. So there's the structure. There's a flyover summary of this chapter. Now, moving back to a reading, verse 1. 
Now it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto his people, and they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. There's so much to consider in that. So many questions arise. Uh, which, uh, which of the rising generation? Were they Mulekites? Were they Nephites? Were they from the people of Limhi? Were they from the people of Alma? Well, as we will learn, they were even the sons of the king, and they were Alma's sons as well. So this was a sweeping movement, it seems, um, in the land of Zarahemla that was pervasive. Now, verse 2 They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead. Neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. The last time we kind of read language like that might have been the Sherem story, really, in Jacob chapter 7. Someone who would be brazen enough to say that he did not believe the coming of Christ. For us, Christ is a historical, uh, uh, that's accepted historically, that Jesus of Nazareth did exist and that uh, we connect his name to to the Christ, at least in the Christian world we do. Uh, but remember, this was before he came. And so I use the word brazen, but maybe I should soften it a little bit, because he certainly had not come yet, and it took faith. And so there were those who believed that, he, that there just wasn't going to be a Christ that would come. Now verse 3, And now because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. Now, this gives us a very critical doctrinal pearl, I think, in verse 3, because we can see that belief precedes understanding in this case, instead of the other way around. And the Savior, of course, talked about that in John chapter 17, when he talked about um, understanding the doctrine and he connected it with behavior. Now, verse 4, and they would not be baptized, neither would they join a church. And they were a separate people as to their faith, and remained so ever after, even in their carnal and sinful state, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. So this verse forecasts the fact that not all of the rising generation, even after everything that unfolds in this chapter, and Alma uh, starts to reform the body of the church in this manner, not everyone was responsive to this because it says, and remained so ever after even in their carnal and sinful state. Uh, So in a few chapters, for example, we'll read of Nehor and all those who were sympathetic to his message, and then later Korahor and all those who were sympathetic to his, and we'll read of the Amlicites and Amalekites and kingmen and and so forth. So uh, this seems to be the beginning of a movement within Nephite society that is unbelieving. And uh, that must be why it says, and remain so ever after. So this opening passage, verses 1 through 4 in Mosiah chapter 26, it's troubling, especially after we had just read what we have in Mosiah chapter 25. Those beautiful chords of resolution have sounded in our ears, and now we're faced with this in verses 1 through 4. This comes from the BYU, or excuse me, Book of Mormon Institute Manual. President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency emphasized the need to teach the youth of the church to believe in God. Quote, no charge in the kingdom is more important than to build faith in youth. Each child in each generation chooses faith or disbelief. Faith is not an inheritance. It is a choice. Those who believed King Benjamin learned that. 
Many of their children chose later not to believe. The scriptures give us a reason, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. And that's what we had just read in verse 4. They They would not call upon the Lord their God. Speaking to the youth of the church, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained why older church members mentor those younger than them. So much that we do in this church is directed toward you, those whom the Book of Mormon calls the rising generation. We who have already walked that portion of life's path that you are now on try to call back to you something of what we have learned. We shout encouragement. We try to warn of pitfalls or perils along the way. Where possible, we try to walk with you and keep you close to our side. That's out of an April 1995 conference talk by Elder Holland. Here is more from Elder Eyring from that same uh, passage I read a moment ago, and it comes from an event that he did with Elder Maxwell, uh, and it was called Helping Students Inquire of the Lord. It was a CES presentation in 2001. And Elder Eyring said, No charge in the kingdom is more important than to build faith in youth. Each child in each generation chooses faith or disbelief. Faith is not an inheritance, it is a choice. Those who believed King Benjamin learned that. Many of their children chose later not to believe. The scriptures give us a reason, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. Now here's where um, the expanded part of what Elder Eyring said. Teach doctrine and recount stories of faith and courage, he's telling uh, church education system teachers. Um, I hope your students will remember the doctrine and the stirring stories, but most of all, your students will be more inclined to inquire of the Lord because of their experiences with you. Faithful Lehi learned the same sad lesson. Nephi chose to believe when others in the family did not. The same cause was named. Nephi had taught them things they found hard to understand, save a man should inquire of the Lord, and they being hard in their hearts, therefore they did not look unto the Lord as they ought. You will remember in this year, teach doctrine and recount stories of faith and courage. I hope your students will remember the doctrine and the stirring stories, but most of all, when the year is done, some, oh how I pray it could be all, of your students, will be more inclined to inquire of the Lord because of their experiences with you. For instance, many of you will soon come to the stories of the conversion of Saul and the martyrdom of Stephen. So we can see that this was in a New Testament year when President Eyring was speaking. You will teach the doctrine of the Godhead, but you can help your students feel Jesus' love in the rebuke, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And the comfort given to a dying martyr by the Holy Ghost in a vision of the Savior standing by the Father. Your students can feel that the Savior reaches out to them to repent, and that a loving Father and His Son watch over them in the worst of times. If they can feel that, they will be more likely to look unto the Lord as they ought. They will be more likely to pray to know the truth, a prayer that will be answered with an increase in faith and with instructions of what they are to do. You, then, will have done more than you may be able to see with mortal eyes, but the Lord will see, and He and your students and their parents will someday call you blessed. Now returning to this predicament, this rising generation, in verse 5, And now in the reign of Mosiah, they were not half so numerous as the people of God, but because of the dissensions among the brethren, they became more numerous. So it would seem that there are this, this, these dissenters are of the rising generation, but it seems to have caused 
dissensions among the brethren in the church, seems to be the implication here. For it came to pass that they did deceive many with their flattering words, who were in the church, and did cause them to commit many sins. Therefore it became expedient that those who committed sin that were in the church should be admonished by the church. This gives us an opportunity to talk for a moment about the idea of church discipline, the, the kind of current dispensation way that we um, describe this concept of admonishing those within the church who have erred. Um, this comes from True to the Faith. Bishops and branch presidents and stake, mission, and district presidents have a responsibility to help members overcome transgression through repentance. The purposes of disciplinary councils are to save the souls of transgressors, protect the innocent, and safeguard the purity, integrity, and good name of the church. Additionally, it should be remembered that church discipline is an inspired process that takes place over a period of time. Through this process and through the atonement of Jesus Christ, a member can receive forgiveness of sins, regain peace of mind, and gain strength to avoid transgression in the future. Church disciplinary action is not intended to be the end of the process. It is designed to help Heavenly Father's children continue in their efforts to return to full fellowship and the full blessings of the church. The desired result is that the person make whatever changes are necessary to repent completely. So that's our our modern dispensation. We can see that this is what was happening in this dispensation. And of course, we'll come to this great revelation that comes to Alma that helps him to to deal with this really vexing problem. Now, verse 7, 8, and 9, verses 7, 8, and 9, show us how these dissenters are brought before the church, and then ultimately to Alma. So verse 7, And it came to pass that they were brought before the priests, and delivered up unto the priests by the teachers, and the priests before them before Alma, who was the high priest. I would add here that the word them is being used, and whether this is those outside of the church who are in this rising generation who never embraced the covenant, or whether this is those among the church who started to dissent, uh, it's not entirely clear, but it's probably more of the latter, since they were um, already covenant keepers, or they were originally covenant keepers, therefore they were under the purview of the church leaders. This is from McConkie and Millet. References to priests and teachers in the Book of Mormon should not be confused with the office of priest or the office of teacher as known to us in the Aaronic priesthood today. In all dispensations, it is the duty of those called to bear the priesthood to watch over the church always and be with and strengthen them and see that there is no iniquity in the church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking, and see that the church meet together often and also see that all members do their duty." And there they are quoting from Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verses 53 through 55, which, of course, elucidates upon these priesthood duties. Now, verse 8. Now, King Mosiah had given Alma the authority over the church, and it came to pass that Alma did not know concerning them. But there were many witnesses against them, yea, the people stood and testified of their iniquity in abundance. So that's where we uh, get the understanding that Alma was not completely aware of at least of the scope of this problem, as we find in verse 9. Now, Ogden and Skinner give us this summarizing commentary of the nine verses that we have read so far. The rising generation disbelieved the doctrines of faith in the coming of a Redeemer, the need to repent of sins and the resurrection of the dead. They refused to join the church and be baptized, and their numbers increased because of the dissensions among the brethren of the church. Members of the church caught up in worldliness 
were called in to disciplinary councils before their priesthood leaders. Alma, the presiding authority of the church, did not know about those who were rebelling against the church, sinning and luring away others. He was not aware then that his own son was among the rebels. Now that's an excellent point, and that's of course what we will learn next chapter, is that his son was indeed among these rebels. Now in verses 10 and 11, we find Alma turning to Mosiah with this problem. Now there had not any such thing happened before in the church. Therefore Alma was troubled in his spirit, and he caused that they should be brought before the king. There's so much of interest in this verse, I think, because Alma, at this point in his life and in, in his ministry, is so rich with experience. He has gone through so much. He has such incredible knowledge of the process of personal change and of repentance and the the role of the covenant in one's life and the way in which one embraces the atonement of Jesus Christ on the individual level. Then he clearly, from an organizational standpoint, has a great deal of experience and a great deal of genius and is ultimately given charge over the entire church in Zarahemla. So this is a man with a wealth of experience, yet... There had not any such thing happened before in the church, and Alma is troubled in his spirit. So quite interesting to see that. Now verse 11, And he said unto the king, Behold, here are many whom we have brought before thee who are accused of their brethren. Yea, and they have been taken in diverse iniquities, and they do not repent of their iniquities. Therefore we have brought them before thee, that thou mayest judge them according to their crimes. I would add to, to my previous point uh, of Alma's um, wealth of experience yet being troubled by this particular issue, that when we received direction from President Nelson, as we most recently did uh, after that great general conference with the Solemn Assembly, and then President Nelson spoke to us and talked to us about revelation in the church and revelation for our lives, and he talked about the way in which he called his counselors and, and the way in which we can also apply the same process of revelation and do as Joseph did, as he said, and go before the Lord in prayer and speak with him, and does God want to speak to you? Yes, he says. And we got all of that in President Nelson's message, but we might consider how similar he undoubtedly is to Alma in this case, and that President Nelson um, is at a point of arrival in the sense that he was able to tell that to us, but he too is living this principle from day to day, and he is navigating through new Uh, vexing problems. That, of course, especially applies to this current pandemic in the year 2020 that we're experiencing. And undoubtedly, President Nelson is going before the Lord with vexing problems that he'd never seen or considered before. So he, like Alma, he is living this, uh, even though he stands uh, in in such a, a leadership position in the church. So really something interesting to think about, I think. Now we find what King Mosiah does Uh, when Alma sends these dissenters to him. King Mosiah said unto Alma, in verse 12, Behold, I judge them not, therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. Now there's some commentary on this. First from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. After King Mosiah, as king and prophet, gave Alma authority to establish churches throughout the land, it seemed natural for Alma to bring the disobedient church members to Mosiah to be judged. The king, however, having delegated priesthood authority to Alma, indicated that Alma was responsible for dealing with those who had transgressed the laws of the church. Mosiah retained the judgment of those who broke the laws of the land. 
Uh, Daniel Peterson said this in an article called Church Discipline in the Book of Mosiah, Old habits die hard. Alma, who claimed anti-monarchical views, turned to the monarch for assistance. Now, when he says anti-monarchical views, I think what Peterson is referring to is that really beautiful passage that we read a couple chapters back when the people wanted Alma to be their king, and he very eloquently um, explained that he did not want to do that. And that's when they were in the land of Helam and thought that this new life that they were establishing would would move into subsequent generations and that this was a new Nephite era. But Alma rebuffs their, their efforts to have him installed as king. And so that's what Peterson here is calling his anti-monarchical views. So then he says, turned to the monarch, meaning Mosiah, for assistance in solving a grievous ecclesiastical problem. But he had miscalculated King Mosiah too, for he was probably Alma's greatest convert to the anti-monarchical position. And of course, that will manifest later in Mosiah chapter 29. And at least in this instance, Mosiah was a more consistent partisan of that stance than was the high priest. He refused to become involved in the kind of religious ecclesiastical issue that he had put onto Alma's shoulders. To this issue of judgment as a church leader and an ecclesiastical leader, President Boyd K. Packer once wrote this in That All May Be Edified. He said, Remember that soothing, calming effect of reading the scriptures. Next time you are uh, where they are read, notice how things settle down. Sense the feeling of peace and security that comes. Now, from the Book of Mormon, this closing thought, the prophet Alma faced a weightier problem than you, Bishop, will likely see in your ministry. Like you, he felt uncertain, and he went to Mosiah. Mosiah wisely turned the problem back to him, saying, Behold, I judge them not, therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. And now the spirit of Alma was again troubled, and he went again, or he went and inquired of the Lord what he should do concerning this matter, for he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And it came to pass that after he poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him. Of course, we'll read those verses here in just a moment. Then President Packer continues, That voice will speak to you, Bishop. That is your privilege. I bear witness of that, for I know that he lives. May God bless you, Bishop, the inspired judge in Israel, and those who come to you as you counsel them in the Lord's own way. So now we come to these verses that Elder Packer just referenced, where Alma inquires of the Lord, since um, turning to Mosiah um, resulted in the response that we just read about. He inquires of the Lord, and he receives a revelation. Verse 13, And now the spirit of Alma was again troubled, and he went and inquired of the Lord what he should do concerning this matter. For he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. Elder Bednar uh, once wrote this, Meekness is a defining attribute of the Redeemer and is distinguished by righteous responsiveness, willing submissiveness, and strong self-restraint. That, of course, is from a recent conference talk called Meek and Lowly of Heart. Verse 14, And it came to pass that after he had poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, And then we get this section, of course, that goes from verses 15 through 32. First this, though, from McConkie and Millet. There are moments that matter, occasions when a supplicant is poignantly aware of the need for divine direction. Though we are continually dependent on the light of heaven to illuminate our paths, there are occasions that require a sure answer. 
occasions in which we pour out our whole souls in prayer, we implore with an intensity and petition with a passion. Even our master at the time of his greatest test prayed more earnestly, as it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. So now in the Lord's own words, here is this segment from verses 15 to 32. Blessed art thou, Alma, and blessed are they who were baptized in the waters of Mormon. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant Abinadi. So remarkable for Alma to be getting uh, the Lord's words himself, and he recalls this instance in the waters of Mormon and and, uh, commends him for the way in which um, he's composed himself so far in his ministry. Now, verse 16, And blessed are they because of their exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. And notice the Lord is drawing a comparison between the way in which Alma showed faith in the words alone of Abinadi. He's the only one that did. And now he's saying in verse 16, you are now Abinadi. And there are those who now have the task of applying their faith to your words. And so he's saying some will and some won't. Now verse 17, and blessed art thou because thou hast established a church among this people. And they shall be established, and they shall be my people. Yea, blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name. For in my name shall they be called, and they are mine. We're very familiar with this concept, thanks to King Benjamin, by the way. Now verse 19, And because thou hast inquired of me concerning the transgressor, thou art blessed. Lynn A. Mickelson wrote this in a talk called Atonement, Repentance, and Dirty Linen. Fearing to do wrong in the sight of God... Alma poured out his whole soul to God and pled with him for answers as as to how to handle the transgressors. Because of Alma's great love for his fellow man and his fervent desire to do God's will, the Lord blessed him mightily, even with a promise of eternal life. Then the Lord explained to him why his pleading for understanding in judgment was so important, saying, This is my church. It is my name through which they will be saved. It is through my sacrifice. It is I who will judge." And this, of course, is is the tone that this section will take now as we read on. In verse 20, Thou art my servant, and I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life, and thou shalt serve me and go forth in my name, and shalt gather together my sheep. Ogden and Skinner summarize what we have read so far by saying, Alma was concerned about what to do with the divisiveness in the church, After he had poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him. The same can happen to us if we need and really want revelation. We pour out our whole souls to God, and then the voice of the Lord may come to us too. The Lord reassured Alma and pronounced blessings on him, including a covenant that he would be sealed up to eternal life. Uh, This is from History of the Church. After a person has faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and is baptized for the remission of his sins, and receives the Holy Ghost, let him continue to seek after righteousness, and living by every word of God, and the Lord will soon say unto him, Son, thou shalt be exalted. When the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that the man is determined to serve him at all hazards, then the man will find his calling and his election made sure then it will be his privilege to receive the other comforter. Those are the words, of course, of Joseph Smith, and suggest perhaps that that's what's happening here as the Lord is saying this to Alma in verse 20, Thou shalt have eternal life. 
Now, verse 21, the Lord continues, And he that will hear my voice shall be my sheep, and him shall you receive into the church, and him will I also receive. It's so beautiful, I think, up to this point in this revelation, that first Alma is addressed as the Lord's sheep. He talks about how he accepted him at the waters of Mormon, and how he believed in the words of Abinadi and has moved forward in this way. How he, as this individual, Alma, will receive eternal life, and how it is his job now to, as the Lord told Peter, to feed his sheep. And so now that he's established this with Alma and discussed his own personal trajectory, he is now turning to these sheep, including those sheep who are lost. Verse 22, For behold, this is my church. Or he might say, this is my church telling this to Alma, whosoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance, and whomsoever ye receive shall believe in my name, and him will I freely forgive. For it is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world, for it is I that hath created them, and it is I that granteth unto him that believeth unto the end a place at my right hand. So the Lord is making it clear to Alma that this is an issue that goes beyond church membership. This is an issue of being accepted by the Lord himself, who is the the ultimate judge. And the ultimate issue at hand here is whether these that now err will be found at his right hand. Verse 24, For behold, in my name are they called, and if they know me, they shall come forth, and shall have a place eternally at my right hand. And it shall come to pass that when the second trump shall sound, then shall they that never knew me come forth and stand before me. This, by the way, I think is an interesting reference to the parable of the ten virgins because those who are rejected at the door of the bridegroom are told that they didn't know him. Verse 26, that's something Elder Bednar once clarified in a conference talk. And then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that I am their Redeemer, but they would not be redeemed. And then I will confess unto them that I never knew them, and they shall depart into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Therefore I say unto you, that he that will not hear my voice, the same shall ye not receive into my church, for him I will not receive at the last day. So again, showing that this superficial issue, in a way, of those who are accepted into the church or not, represents something much deeper and much more lasting, which is whether they actually know the Lord and will be accepted among his own when that day comes. This is from uh, Joseph B. Worthlin. We can choose to know the Lord by reading the scriptures every day, by communicating with him in fervent prayer at least morning and night, and in times of trial every hour or more if needed, and by keeping his commandments. Remember, hereby we do know that we know him, and if we keep his commandments, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-5. through 5. And That's out of a talk by uh, Elder Worthland called Finding Peace in Our Lives. As we do apply this to ourselves, uh, after hearing from Elder Worthland in this way, and, and how we see that the Lord uh, has come directly to Alma, that his voice has come directly to Alma, and he has written, as we will soon see, what the Lord told him. We wonder how this could apply to us 
Uh, and we get this great statement in Doctrine and Covenants, section 18, verses 33 through 36. And I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it. These words are not of men, nor of man, but of me. Wherefore you shall testify that they are of me, and not of man. For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you. For they are given by my Spirit unto you. And by my power you can read them one to another, and save it were by my power you could not have them. Wherefore you can testify that you have heard my voice and know my words. A wonderful statement, again in section 18, that applies to all the revelations that have come from the Lord, and most certainly to this segment here that is coming to Alma. Verse 29, Therefore I say unto you, Go, Alma, and whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge according to the sins which he has committed. And if he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. Again, indicating that there's that Alma is the gatekeeper. He's the judge in Israel, but he's representing the judge of all. President Nelson once wrote with reference to a repentance and, and, and it being sincere, uh, leading one towards the end that the Lord is talking about here in verse 29. He said, We begin with a dictionary's definition that to repent is to turn from sin, to feel sorrow and regret. To repent from sin is not easy, but the prize is worth the price. Repentance needs to be done one step at a time. Humble prayer will facilitate each essential step. As prerequisites to forgiveness, there must first be recognition, remorse, then confession. By this ye may know that if a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Now this from the teachings of Harold B. Lee. Sometimes, too, stake presidents, bishops, and others are so anxious about not offending someone that they do not confront them when there is serious moral transgression. I was in a state conference recently where one of the bishops frankly stated that he had determined that he would never excommunicate any person, no matter what the sin. I told him that if this was his true feeling, then he was in the wrong position as a common judge in Israel. Whenever I have been asked by a bishop or stake president as to how he should handle a given case, I've usually replied that it was his responsibility as a bishop to make that decision and not mine as a general authority, and that in making his decision, he had better be sure that he was right. To be a judge requires spiritual guidance, tact, and wisdom, but it takes courage when action is necessary. I do not think such situations call for stake presidents and bishops to be insensitive or militant, but stake presidents and bishops must realize that the gospel is designed to change us all, to make us more like the master. When we let members lead a double and destructive life instead of doing them a favor, as we suppose, we damage them, sometimes irreparably. We must let the light of the gospel standards shine fully and not try to deflect the penetrating rays of its standards. The gospel is to save man, not to condemn them, but to save. It is sometimes necessary to confront and to discipline as the Lord has directed us. When individuals are on the wrong path, our task is to redirect them lovingly and to not watch idly from our vantage point on the straight and narrow path. Now, verse 30, the Lord continues, Yea, and as often as my people repent, Will I forgive them their trespasses against thee? The Book of Mormon Institute Manual says this about this passage. Confession of sins is required as part of the repentance process. 
The Lord declared, By this you may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, verse 43. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's Proverbs 28, verse 13. Essential to forgiveness is a willingness to disclose fully to your Heavenly Father all that you have done. Kneel before Him in humble prayer, acknowledging your sins. Confess your shame and guilt, and then plead for help. Serious transgressions, such as violations of the law of chastity, may jeopardize your membership in the church. Therefore, you need to confess confess these sins uh, to both the Lord and His representatives in the church. This is done under the care of your bishop or branch president and possibly your stake president or mission president who serve as watchmen and judges in the church. While only the Lord can forgive sins, these priesthood leaders play a critical role in the process of repentance. They will keep your confession confidential and help you throughout the process of repentance. Be completely honest with them. If you partially confess, mentioning only lesser mistakes, you will not be able to resolve a more serious undisclosed transgression. The sooner you begin this process, the sooner you will find the peace and joy that come with the miracle of forgiveness. Down H. Oaks once said this uh, to the question of how, and Thomas Arvaletta poses this question in his Book of Mormon study guide, how does the church bless the transgressor? Elder Oaks said the objective of church discipline is to facilitate repentance, to qualify a transgressor for the mercy of God and the salvation made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Consequently, church discipline is not an instrument of punishment, but a catalyst for change. The purpose of the suffering that must occur as part of the process of repentance is not to punish the transgressor, but to change him. The broken heart and contrite spirit required to answer the ends of the law introduce the repentant transgressor to the change necessary to conform his life to the pattern prescribed by his Redeemer. Now the final two verses of this The Lord says, And ye shall also forgive one another your trespasses. For verily I say unto you, He that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses, when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. There we can think of that parable that the Savior shares, where the man is forgiven his 10,000 talent debt, and then does not turn and forgive his servant. Uh, This um, is from a conference report in 1949 from President Spencer W. Kimball, he said, Remember that we must forgive even if our offender did not repent and ask forgiveness. Do we follow that commandment or do we sulk in our bitterness, waiting for our offender to learn of it and to kneel to us in remorse? No bitterness of past frictions can be held in memory if we forgive with all our hearts. Now verse 32, Now I say unto you, Go, and whosoever will not repent of his sins, the same shall not be numbered among my people, And this shall be observed from this time forward. So that brings us to the end of this revelation that was given to Alma that reads so much like a section in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now we find what Alma did with this once he received it. He did the same thing that Joseph did. He wrote it. And it came to pass that when Alma had heard these words, he wrote them down that he might have them and that he might judge the people of the church according to the commandments of God. This is not the first time that we have seen Alma act in this role because we know that he hid after escaping from King Noah's court and he wrote the words of of Abinadi. He undoubtedly had the inspiration of the Lord with him as he did that as well. This is from Ogden and Skinner. 
Verses 15 through 32 are the words of the Lord to Alma in answer to his earnest inquiry. The very next verse tells us when Alma had heard these words, he wrote them down. That is a wonderful suggestion to every one of us. While you are studying the scriptures, you are entitled to receive the Spirit. And while feeling the Spirit, revelation may come. Keep a notebook, any kind of notebook, right alongside your scriptures. And during your reading, stop and ponder what you read. As impressions come to you, write them down. They may be thoughts about what you are reading, but maybe not. While you are in the Spirit, the Lord may reveal something to you that has nothing to do with what is written on the page you are studying, but has everything to do with the specific circumstances of your life. Sometimes as impressions come, we may think, Don't bother me, Lord, I'm studying the Scriptures, (laughs) and He can't get through to us. Do not get too busy going through the motions that you cannot receive revelation when He wants to send it. Joseph Smith once warned, For neglecting to write these things when God had received them, not esteeming them of sufficient worth, the Spirit may withdraw and God may be angry. If God tells us something, we need to write it down right then, as Alma did. Before moving farther into uh, Alma's response to this revelation and how he dealt with this dissenting group, here's a clarification from President Spencer W. Kimball in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, because we've read earlier about Alma's injunction to forgive, and of course that extends to bishops today and anyone else who functions as a judge in Israel. But President Kimball says this, The bishop and others in comparable positions can forgive in the sense of waiving the penalties, In our loose connotation, we sometimes call this forgiveness, but it is not forgiveness in the sense of wiping out our absolution. The waiver means, however, that the individual will not need to be tried again for the same error and that he may become active and have fellowship with the people of the church. In receiving the confession and waiving the penalties, the bishop is representing the Lord. It is the Lord, however, who forgives sin. Now moving on, now that we see that Alma wrote this, And it came to pass that Alma went and judged those who had been taken in iniquity according to the word of the Lord. Remember that at this point, this word has been written, it has been canonized, and so now he has it as a standard to use in church governance, just the way the prophet Joseph Smith did as he wrote the sections in the Doctrine and Covenants and then used them as a standard. Verse 35, And whosoever repented of their sins and did confess them, Uh, he did number them among the people of the church. And those that would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquity, the same were not numbered among the people of the church, and their names were blotted out. So returning here, of course, to specifically how these dissenters were handled, uh, Ogden and Skinner wrote, These verses contain instructions on how to determine, during church disciplinary councils, what course of action should be followed. We want people in the church, not out of it, of course, but they must be in it on the Lord's conditions. And uh, I'd pause and say we can say the same of repentance in general and the gospel system in general. It, It is indeed on the Lord's conditions. It is essential to maintain the integrity of the church. Elder Dallin H. Oates explained, the objective of church discipline is to facilitate repentance, at the same time protecting the flock and preserving the good name and influence of the church. He observed that the spiritual purpose is not to punish the transgressor, but to aid his repentance and save his soul. Moreover, the most important single fact bearing on what church discipline is needed is the extent of repentance of the transgressor. We're not interested in having people's names blotted out. We truly desire to see their sins blotted out. 
Again, blotted out is the phrase that uh, came here in verse 36 of this chapter. McConkie and Millet say that is, they were cut off from the church. Their names were removed from the records of the church. It would be as though no baptism had taken place, no remission of sins had been granted, no promises given. And that's a way of explaining that phrase, blotted out. We now have this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, an extended piece of commentary uh, with reference to this phrase, their names were blotted out. Blotted out in Mosiah chapter 26, verse 36, refers to excommunication. When a church member commits serious sin, the Lord's servants must take steps to assist the sinner through repentance. Sometimes this involves formal or informal church discipline. Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained, Church discipline encourages members to keep the commandments of God. Its mere existence stresses the seriousness and clarifies the meaning of the commandments of God. This is extremely important in an otherwise permissive society. The shepherd has a responsibility to protect the flock. That responsibility may require him to deny the sinner the fellowship of the saints or even to sever his membership in the flock. As Jesus taught, if he repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my people, for behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. President James E. Faust of the First Presidency identified offenses that warrant church discipline. Church discipline is not limited to sexual sins, but includes other acts such as murder, abortions, burglary, theft, fraud, and other dishonesty, deliberate disobedience to the rules and regulations of the church, advocating or practicing polygamy, apostasy, or any other unchristian conduct, including defiance or ridicule of the Lord's anointed, contrary to the law of the church and the order of the church. Among the activities considered apostate to the church include when members, one, repeatedly act in clear, open, and deliberate public opposition to the church or its leaders, two, persist in teaching as church doctrine information that is not church doctrine after being corrected by their bishops or higher authority, or three, continue to follow the teachings of apostate cults, such as those that advocate plural marriage, after being corrected by their bishops or higher authority. In 1985, the First Presidency issued an invitation for everyone to come back, which reminded us of our duty toward those who have had their names blotted out. We are aware of some who are inactive, of others who have become critical and are prone to find fault, and of those who have been disfellowshipped or excommunicated because of serious transgressions. To all such, we reach out in love. We are anxious to forgive in the spirit of him who said, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. We encourage church members to forgive those who may have wronged them. To those who have ceased activity and to those who have become critical, we say, come back, come back and feast at the table of the Lord and taste again of the sweet and satisfying fruits of fellowship with the saints. We are confident that many have longed to return but have felt awkward about doing so. We assure you that you will find open arms to receive you and willing hands to assist you. That's from a message that was recorded in the church news, actually, in December 22, December 22nd of 1985, from the First Presidency, Ezra Taft Benson, Gordby Hinckley, and Thomas S. Monson. Now the final three verses of this chapter show us that the church is restored, that peace is restored in the church, but there is ongoing persecution. 
uh, as we look more broadly at this problem. Verse 37, And it came to pass that Alma did regulate all the affairs of the church, and they began again to have peace and to prosper exceedingly in the affairs of the church, walking circumspectly before God, receiving many and baptizing many. And now all these things did Alma and his fellow laborers do who were over the church, walking in all diligence, teaching the word of God in all things, suffering all manner of afflictions, being persecuted by all those who did not belong to the church of God. And they did admonish their brethren. And they were also admonished, everyone by the word of God, according to his sins, or to the sins which he had committed, being commanded of God to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all things. This phrase, pray without ceasing, is something that Hugh Nibley once commented upon in his teachings of the Book of Mormon. He said it means simply that you continue in the practice of prayer. Saying he constantly brushed his teeth doesn't mean he did it 24 hours a day. The interesting thing is that in a Semitic language like Arabic, the only way you can say continually or go on doing a thing is Lazala or Lam Yatsil Mazala, he did not cease, or Mazala Yaktubu, he did not cease writing, means he wrote from time to time or he wrote regularly. When it says they continued in prayer without ceasing, that doesn't mean they had a monastic fanaticism here or anything like that. That, of course, ties into our understanding of other verses in Scripture that talk about praying always. And uh, there's some some beautiful recent commentary on that from Elder Bednar um, when he talks about the meaning of that, always returning to the Lord in prayer at periodic intervals and, and, and evaluating and repenting, um, that, that that all is tied up in the concept of praying without ceasing as well. Uh, beautiful as well how this verse ends and this entire uh, chapter ends in giving thanks to all things. So as we've had opportunity in the previous chapter to consider the story of Alma and how it resolves, we have moved into this chapter and, and we've seen how Alma is presented with a brand new problem despite his vast experience and how it is that he handled this. And this beautiful revelation has come to him that addresses Alma so personally and talks again about his own spiritual trajectory and assures him of his own um, eternal life, which is to come. It's a beautiful chapter, and then, of course, um, connected with all of that is this issue of how to deal with those who are dissenters. This also, as a narrative device, then, will set us up for the next chapter when we discover that among those dissenters, um, there were those who were, were actually the children of Alma himself, which is quite incredible when you think about it, and the sons of Mosiah himself. So this brings us to the end of Mosiah chapter 26. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. 
parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.